Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Healing Autism. I am Karen Thomas, your host. And as you know, this podcast episode uh, or show is about supporting parents of children on the autism spectrum with natural resources. And uh, today is going to be all about school resources and things that you can do to support your child and their specific special needs. There's a lot of confusion, I know, around uh uh, what you can do, uh, what kind of help you can get your child at school, individual education programs and profiles, that's called an IEP, and then something else called a 504 plan. But we have a special guest today with us, Bonnie Landau, and I'm going to have Bonnie explain those things to you in detail and also um, give you a lot of great resources that you can utilize to get your children as much help as they need in school. Because I know sometimes the kids really fall through the cracks at school with help that they really, really need. And if you know this information that we're going to talk about, you can get your child that much more help because you know what to do. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on Bonnie really quickly. She is an educational consultant and advocate who helps parents obtain special education support for their children. And as a special ed mom herself, Bonnie has dedicated the last 11 years to researching solutions to help recover her oldest son. When he was six, neuropsychologists said he was beyond help and to plan, to, to plan for a group home as an adult. He is now an honor student. So as many of us know, what they tell us and what can be can be very different. That's <laughs> my story as well. Um, and he not only is a, an honor student, but he is destined to live a typical life. And Bonnie could not accept that nothing could be done. And she set on a path to find solutions to help her son. So now she's the author of an upcoming book called Special Ed Mom Survival Guide. And she also um, has a professional clinical counselor degree as an intern and as a and uh, has a PPS credential school count as a school counselor maybe you can explain what a PPS school counselor is to us as well Bonnie um, but I'm gonna get into some some big questions here because I'm really really excited or just let you loose with all that you know about things of you know exactly what is a specific educational program for a child and what kind of help they can get and and uh, and you know some of the shortfalls that people see and how you can get around that and the legalities um, because there are some of the legal issues involved as well so welcome Bonnie and thank you for thank joining you. us thank you very much for having me here I'm really excited to share this information Absolutely. I'm really excited about this too. I know that our children often don't get the help that they need in school. And when that happens, they can start falling behind in their personal life, their self-esteem, and not only just the educational aspects. And, and it's important to know that um, advocacy and plans are important, not only in elementary school, middle school, but high school, and then on to college. Yes. So they need, they need different, they have different needs. And um, we can go into some of that, um, that as well. But could you just go ahead and um, give us, first of all, just, you know, the simplest things for some parents who are listening, this is brand new information to them. So even just talking about, um, you know, what is a school's educational um, profile and, um, and how you get one. Right. Well, so, um, so the first thing is when you're trying to get special ed support in school is you kind of have to gauge the, the profile or personality of your district, your school district. How do they give those services? Because, you know, you, you hear of a lot of parents who say, well, I asked, I tried, and they said no, and this is why they said no. And 
the districts each have reasons and most people think it's financial it isn't always financial sometimes it's just the the therapists are overwhelmed they can't take more kids you know so the therapists who are doing the assessments are the ones that are going to provide services so they don't want another kid on their docket so they're going to skew those assessments to avoid having another kid so there's different reasons they don't give services so when you're asking for services you know, this is something to talk to other special ed moms and try to figure out like, how does this district handle this? And you may not get this question first time. Like if your kid's going into kindergarten and you're at the beginning of this, you may, it might not be till first and second grade before you have all the answers, but it's, it's important when you're seeking support to begin with starting to ask, well, how does this district make these decisions? The reason this is so crucial is while the federal government mandates they pro provide support, the federal government does not define how that has to look. And so each state has laws where they might make it more clear who can get support, but then each district actually gets to interpret further. And this is why district to district you see differences. So understanding how they make those choices is really important. And I, I would assume, does everybody need to have a diagnosis from a therapist before they can get some type of a plan at school? No, that's a really good question. And the answer is no. If you feel that your child is struggling in school, usually what happens is you put your kid in kindergarten and within a few months, you start seeing that your child's not doing well or the teacher's complaining that your child's a behavior problem or something. And, and so then you start realizing your child's not doing well in school. So what the school does is they, you, you sometimes on their own, but usually with you requesting, they'll do an evaluation. Now they're not diagnosing your child. This is really important point. A lot of people say like my son qualifies for his IP under autism, but he's never been clinically diagnosed with autism and he's been assessed six times and he had post-concussive syndrome. So he had a head injury and he had cerebral folate deficiency, both of which, and auditory processing disorder. All combined together, it looked like autism, but they were different things, you see. So just because they put the child in a category doesn't mean they're diagnosing. What they're saying is your child has symptoms that look like that diagnosis, so we're putting them there in school. So that's the first step. Now. The school is supposed to do, under the law, they have something called child find, okay, where the school is required, when they see a child struggling, they're required to do an evaluation to determine if the child qualifies for special education. But in my experience, it's a rare school district that will do that without the parent asking for it. So it's really important that you as a parent watch your child and see if they're struggling in school. It has nothing to do with what a doctor outside of school has said about your child. And sometimes kids are called uh, either lazy, uh, they think that they, uh, they are not trying hard enough. Um, and I, I know for a fact, we actually had my son's brain scanned at one point that, that especially you see this with a lot of ADD kids that you can either be hyperactive ADD or you can be underactive ADD, which means your brain is not able to function um, at the pace uh, or if you're stressed at all, your brain will, you'll have uh, part of your brain will kind of shut down. You can't think properly. So, you know, people say, well, he could do really well at, at one task, but he didn't bother with another. And it's not necessarily that he's not trying, but that his brain isn't able to function that way. 
that that's a really critical thing that the schools don't understand and the teachers in particular who are not trained in this the teachers are more apt to label a child as lazy or or oppositional mm -hmm. than having a disability it's really tragic I, I actually work as a therapist in schools and i've had kids whose self-esteem was damaged because they felt like they were horrible students when in fact they actually had a disability that made it difficult for them to access their education Right. They could have a very high IQ yeah. and want to do what's asked, but they're, they're not able to, to take it, carry out the task um, because of, of brain issues. And I, I work with this and I have a program where I work with the biology to get a lot of the toxins out and, and heal the gut up because those things are crucial to the brain being able to function properly. So, you know, just trying to do push a, a child in therapies who's completely loaded with toxins and whose gut is, is really, really ill, they're, they're also gonna have a lot more problems. So you definitely wanna make sure you're dealing with the biology health as well. Yeah, you know, just a side note with my son, we, we handled biomedical healing last it was the last piece we did and i wish it had been the first because mm -hmm. it produced the most dramatic results it's what took him from needing a one-on-one -on -one aid in school to not needing any aid at all and and that has to be the first step in recovering your child is what's going on biologically in the child and there's a lot of great therapies but you're not going to make tremendous project progress if the if the functionality isn't there you know, right. so yeah, totally agree with that. <laughs> we had that exact experience with, with my son as well. So um, I, I have a program and I'll link to it. It's called Autism Moms Mentor. And I walk parents through um, all of the aspects of healing the gut and then natural heavy metal detoxification and then brain support and repair to help heal up those neural pathways that get miswired when the biology is so toxic. Mm -hmm. uh, because I saw how, same as you, that if my son had had those things prior to all of the thousands of dollars and time spent in therapy, when we finally realized this is not working, I pulled him out, this was early on as I was still researching, and now, once his same thing, once his biology healed up, he never ever needed an aid in school or anything. He was he never even had to go back to therapies, and that shocks some people. And it, it is shocking, it is. but it's real. Uh, so yeah. definitely want people no. to know about that. It is real. You know, our son did neurofeedback for 15 months and had very slow progress. And about a year and a half later, we brought him back uh, for several reasons, um, and. A year and a half later, we had already begun the biomedical healing of the him. And when he came back and did it, the doctor was astonished. He was healing at three times the rate as the first time he did it. And she just, she couldn't believe it. And I said, it's because now his brain chemistry is right. So um, I, and we weren't done with biomedical healing, which is why in retrospect, I realized he needed neurofeedback he needed it for anxiety now he has zero anxiety now that we got biology right but just a good example of how making the biology right makes such a dramatic difference yeah absolutely so. and i'll i can link to another podcast i did on neurofeedback for those listening who are wondering about it um and so bonnie you had mentioned too there are, there are laws in school where uh, teachers and other staff members are actually not 
allowed by law to mention to a parent if they feel that your child is having certain issues. It's against the law. That just seems absurd because they're the person seeing your child in and out in that classroom and they could be so valuable, that information could be so valuable to a parent, but they're not able. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so it's um, it's really considered outside their realm of practice that they're not the expert, so they can't say it's illegal. It happens all the time, but it's illegal for a teacher to say your child's having attention issues. Maybe you should take him to the pediatrician and get some medication for ADHD. I mean, already that teacher has branded that child, and it, he may not have ADHD. Like my son had a lot of trouble sitting still and it turned out to be post-concussive syndrome my younger son had trouble sitting still it turned out to be a visual processing problem you know so i think that um the teachers aren't allowed to put that label on them but the challenges is uh, really good examples my son my older son was in special ed preschool and serious language delay and uh, he wanted very much to be social. He was very sociable and very loving, but his social behavior was very um, disconnected. Like he had inappropriate responses and stuff. And so when he um, got into kindergarten, that's when I took over and started really researching. I figured out he had auditory processing disorder. And I ran into the special ed teacher after we figured this out. And and she says to me, oh, yeah, he had all the symptoms. I wondered if he had that. I'm like, why? Why didn't you say? Why didn't you say? Because it turned out he actually had something called a conductive hearing loss, which was fixed with a listening therapy. And it like opened up his world for him because now he could hear right, you know, but they and this was three three years that they had been with these special ed people and they never said maybe this is what's going on with him. And so. It's, um, it's something that I really emphasize, even though my focus is helping parents get help in school, I keep telling them, you're in charge. You need to see what you have to do outside of school. You cannot rely on the school to help your child because mm -hmm. they do not legally have the ability to, and they don't have the training. So I think that's a really crucial point. Yeah, absolutely. And are there specific areas where you find uh, that type of assessment is a, a good place for a parent to go? Anything in particular that comes to mind? Uh, well, for me, I think there's so many different things that could be haywire. So you got to start with the biology. And once you get the biology right, a lot of things are going to fix themselves. Mm -hmm. But then you also have to look at things like, is the wiring there? So primary reflex integration. And, and then once you figure out that the wiring is there, like in my son's case, he had the wiring for auditory processing dis, um, ability, but he had all these ear infections that impaired it. So that means the processing wasn't there. So, and then finally, once they have the processing, so he was able to hear, but now he was delayed socially and verbally. So now we needed therapies to catch him up. And he's still, um, because he had other issues that we didn't realize until he was 12 and 13, He's still a little bit delayed socially, and but speech is all fine and everything. But so there isn't one place you can go. I had right. a mom ask me this yesterday. She wanted to figure out if the child had sensory issues, visual issues, and auditory issues. She said, what one professional can I go to? And the answer to that is there really isn't. 
what I do in my practice is I talk to the parents and I do an intake assessment. And then based on symptoms, I would say, you need to go talk to Karen. Your child's clearly demonstrating biological issues. You need somebody like her or your child clearly has symptoms of a vision issue. You need to go to a, a developmental optometrist so I can help tell them where to go and what to research. But they're unfortunately the developmental pediatricians are supposed to be the ones who can catch it all. I've never heard of one though that really catches it all. Right. Yeah. They're just not, they're not trained in it. They don't know those things. And, and, and again, with the biology in question, if things are, 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 are not, you know, if, if they, they still, if their bio, biology is still very toxic and, and they're still unhealthy, then, then that has to be taken care of first. So what can a parent um, do uh, as far as how can they find an advocate to help them in school and what can they do at school um, as far as like setting up these meetings and, um, and, and it's, is it possible to get a meeting before school starts or do you have to wait till school starts and then when do you ask for one and how do you find an advocate, those types of things? Yeah, so there's federal laws about this, but then there's also state laws. So we're, uh, we're in California, so our state law is this. You ask for a meeting in writing. It's really crucial that it be in writing. You, you write a letter and you say that my son is having or my daughter's having these challenges at school and I would like him or her to be evaluated for learning disability and please get back to me within X days in California. It's in 15 days. They have to get back to you to, to say, okay, this is when we're going to have a meeting and, and this is our plan for assessment. Okay, so they get 15 days to respond. Those 15 days have to be 15 school days. Okay, now some states will say 15 days, including weekends. In California, it's 15 school days. So that's really three weeks. Okay, because unless there's a holiday, so they don't have to count holidays, which means that right now when school's ramping up, a lot of parents are asking for meetings. I want to talk about how you're going to support my child and the school's not responding. Legally, they're not obligated to respond because they don't have to respond until school's in session. And yeah, that means your kid's going to be unsupported for a few weeks, which means that you need to step in and be at school, maybe volunteer, do what you need to, to help your child until the school gets in, involved. So once you request that evaluation, the school will hopefully say, yeah, we're going to evaluate. And so then they um, actually come up with a plan and then they send you a piece of paper where you give them permission to do the evaluation. Now, once you sign that piece of paper and get it back to them, they have 60 days to complete that evaluation and give you, a, you know, do a meeting to discuss the results. So you need to find out, is your district really good about keeping those timelines? And you need to put a reminder on your calendar to check in with them because many districts will, will go beyond the timeline because they think you don't know. Mm -hmm. Now, so for those who aren't in California, you need to check with your state because some states shorten this timeline some and some expand on it so you need to find out what these timelines are and you need to monitor them so what happens if they say though no we're not going to evaluate so then you can ask for something called a prior written notice it's a very poorly named document it really is mostly used before they're going to make a change which is where the word prior comes in 
that a prior written notice is a document where they actually have to give you a detailed explanation as to why they have refused your request. And it cannot be like, we don't see the same thing or we don't feel it's warranted. It has to actually be data-driven information. So it has to be, you know, we have observed your child on five occasions for 20 minutes each and we saw no evidence of the behavior that you brought to our attention. You know, so it has to actually be a measurable way of saying, this is why we're denying the evaluation. And a lot of times if you ask for the prior written notice, the school then will say, okay, we'll do the evaluation because they realize they have no way to justify their no. You understand? Are they so so who is doing this evaluation these these you know these 60 days worth of, of your child being assessed? I mean, what if they they don't think that they see those things? I mean, who, well, who's it, it depends on what you're asking for. So generally, it's the school psychologist is going to be the in charge of the evaluation. But if the child has speech issues, it'll be a speech therapist. If they, mm -hmm. let's say, have writing issues or sensory issues, it would be an occupational therapist. Um, but usually one person, um, in the beginning, it's usually the school psychologist is the case manager, and that person helps to organize how the evaluations are going to be done and who's going to do it. Each person who does an evaluation then has to write a report. So if your child has behavior issues, it should be a behavior specialist, for example. Now, a lot of times the schools will say, well, the school psych can do all of it. And you, you know, that might be an issue if that person doesn't have the training. But so they decide who's going to do it. Now, if they bring the results and they say your child doesn't qualify, this is, a, a, this is the crux of the issue in um, getting help in school. The federal government demands child fine. They must identify children who need special education needs and they must evaluate them and determine what supports they need in school. The problem is, is that the federal government does not delineate how that evaluation process should happen. So in some cases, the states have delineated it, but in some cases, it's really up to each school district. And so that's something in... I have the, a handout, um, a free ebook on my website called uh, Why the Schools Won't or Can't Help Your Child. I talk in detail about that, how they choose to evaluate your child and why they often can easily skew the data to make it seem like your child doesn't qualify. Mm -hmm. And this is the crux of the issue because usually it, they'll come back and say, your child doesn't qualify. And then is that where you, you is, is, it, is it at that point that you seek an advocate? You could seek out an advocate, yeah. And any, if you know from the beginning that your school district plays hardball and that they're difficult, then you get an advocate from the get-go. That's what I would do. And somebody who knows the system, somebody who's familiar with your district, and somebody who knows how to play the system. Now it's... Is there a way for parents to find an advocate? Is there a resource site or anything in particular? How would they find an advocate in their area? Yeah, the, the best way, there isn't one aggregate database. Okay. You can search on Google for, you know, special ed advocate in your city. Uh, there is the Council of Parent, Attorney, and Advocates, COPA, which is a, an association, but in my experience, not all advocates are members of COPA. I am, 
but then COPA, their searchable database, is restricted to the zip code of where the person's office is. So for example, I cover uh, Ventura and Santa Barbara counties, and sometime I'm, sometimes I'm in LA County, but I live in Ventura County. So if you go to the COPA website and you're in Santa Barbara, you're not gonna find me. So you understand, so their search doesn't work so right. great. But you're able to cross those boundaries just because your zip code and your jurisdiction area is where you live in Ventura County. You're able to go to Los Angeles County and work there. It's just that the parent might not see you. So the parent would then need to search for additional advocates possibly in surrounding areas and know that they could come help them as well. Okay. Right. And, you know. know, also asking other fellow special ed moms, if you're on any mm -hmm. groups, you know, on Facebook, if you're in a group of special ed moms, regardless of if the group's autism focused or dyslexia focused or whatever, mm -hmm. say I'm in LA or I'm in wherever you are and say, I'm looking for an advocate. Does anybody know anybody? So if finding an advocate is not easy. I know that when we were trying to do it, when we lived um, in LA County in a different district, and it wasn't LA Unified, but when we were in LA County, I couldn't find an advocate. And, but then I found out through somebody in the district who told me that the reason why our district refused services so much was because it, uh, there was a lot of wealthy people in that area. And so they would come to the very first meeting with an attorney. And so then the school had to have an attorney and then all the communications had to happen between the attorneys. And so that's where all the school's money was going. And so then I learned the only way to get help for my child was to bring an attorney to the table because if I did that, then they knew we were going to drain their funds. And so we brought an attorney to the table and within two months we had everything we were asking for, but it cost me, I could have bought a nice new car for what it cost me. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, really you need to know what your district's like and the word of mouth is the best way to find an advocate. Yeah. Word of mouth is great for everything. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, so say somebody um, is told, okay, we can get you an evaluation. They don't necessarily feel that they need to seek out an advocate and they want to, you know, be able to have to, the knowledge to really help the staff at the school and the staff is maybe willing. What can a parent do? Um, and can you describe what an IEP is and what a 504 plan is so parents know? Because some people have never heard of this before. Right. Okay. So, so once you seek out an uh, evaluation and the school says, yes, there's nothing for you to do. You have to just wait for them to do it. Now they're going to come back with reports. They'll have a meeting and the meeting is to determine whether or not your child gets support in school. So the difference between an IEP, IEP stands for individualized education plan and individualized is the key word there. So an IEP is for a student who needs support in the classroom, but usually also services outside the classroom or maybe an aid in the classroom. So it's more than just support in the classroom. It's some sort of other services. Usually um, children with IEPs have more severe issues uh, that make it more difficult for them to access grade level work. So it could be a student who's very behind, you know, maybe two or three years behind in a subject. And um, a 504 is when a child has a disability, maybe let's say dyslexia, and the child's able to do grade level work, but they need extra support in order to do it. For example, they may need more time. Right. Or in the case of, let's say, a high school student with dyslexia, they may receive written notes so they don't have to worry about taking notes in class. 
So a, a 504 plan basically levels the playing field for somebody with a disability, but it doesn't give them any services to help them improve. Does that make sense? Yes. And so if IEP on the other hand is it IEP also gives those kinds of supports, but it usually has extra services. If a student um, is let's say in special education classes, so like uh, my older son, his biggest issue has always been writing. So he was in a like a remedial language arts class, not special ed, not the special day class, but just a, a language arts classes is working on helping them catch up on language arts. Then you have an IEP because now he's got, he's in a special education class that's considered special education. He's in that class uh, one period a day. So that would be an IEP because that's a major modification to the curriculum. He's not yet, he's probably like a year behind, maybe two years behind in his ability to write. Okay. okay. And where the 504 is more the, the, the staff, the child's teacher or teachers are informed about that child's particular needs, are given a copy of the 504 plan of, of um, as you mentioned, uh, like they'll, they need more time to complete tasks. So the teacher is aware of that. They, they have more time to turn in their homework or assignments because right. they're not able to get them in at the regular timeline, things like that. Right. Right. If like this, for example, if they have ADHD and they have to move a lot, they might have permission to get up and take breaks. Like I had a kid, he got three cards a day and when he needed to move, he would show the teacher a card and he would put it on his desk and he would get up and go out and take a break. And it was like a nonverbal way of saying, I'm taking one of my breaks, you know? So the, the key thing is to know is the school's always going to push you into 504. And the reason why is it doesn't cost them anything. There's no extra services involved. It's basically they're just kind of changing some stuff in the classroom. So 504 is the preferential way to go. But IEPs and 504s are governed by different federal laws. IEPs are governed by IDEA, the Individualized um, Education Act, okay? And 504s are covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, now everybody with a 504 is covered by the Americans with Disabilities. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, everybody with an IEP is covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. So you're protected because of your disability. But the reason why this is really important is because with IEPs, they have to be written, they have to have goals, and they must be reviewed every year based on federal law. Okay, and if the school doesn't do that, they will be in non-compliance and they will get in trouble. You can report them. 504s do not need to be formally written. Oh, and in, in California, IEPs, parents must sign in order for it to be implemented. And all over the country, parents must participate in the development of the IEP, okay? 504s, on the other hand, they are required to invite you to participate, but there's no requirement for the parent to participate. It doesn't have to be a formal plan, and it doesn't have any law about when it can be reviewed. I was working in a school where I discovered I had a student I was working with who had severe behavior problems, really severe, and um, I discovered she had a 504 that had not been implemented for four years. And when I told them, I found this, the, the, the administration says, oh my gosh, don't tell her parents. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so the, because they don't, you know, they aren't required to review it, but they didn't want to have to go through the process of implementing the plan again. And th this was a, a student who was picking up chairs when she was getting angry and throwing them. Wow. So, yeah. So um, this is really important because clearly the child needed extra support. So, um, the, but by law, they don't have to do that with, with a 504. They can just kind of let it go as much as they want. There's no binding um, information that requires them to do it a certain way. Mm -hmm. So when you go asking for support, and if you find your district's trying to push you into a 504, know that that's because it'll save them money and there's no noose around their neck telling them they have to do it a certain way. Okay. So if you feel that your child needs more than a 504 plan, then what do you do? Well, then you probably want to get an advocate or an attorney or somebody who has experience working with your district. If your child is evaluated and they come back and say, I don't think they need an IEP. We think they, we'll just give them a 504 or we'll give them nothing. We don't think they qualify for anything. Then you have a right to request something called an, an uh, independent education evaluation, IEE. Okay, so an IEE is when they go outside the district to get somebody private to evaluate your child. Now, if you request an IEE, they don't have to do it. But if they choose not to do it, they have to file for something called due process, which is like a legal process that they use to um, work through educational disputes. So if the school doesn't want to give you an IEE, it, they, within 10 days, has to file for due process, and then they have to prove to, it's not really a judge, it's, 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 um, it's kind of like a judge, the person who will evaluate what the school did in their evaluation, and then that person determines whether the school did a proper evaluation. But then you've got to come to due process too, and I would recommend if you go to due process to always bring an attorney you've got to go and then you have to prove why you think that their evaluation wasn't adequate. Okay, so it's like a court process. If they don't want to do the IEE, they have to file for due process and then prove why they think they don't need to do it. Most schools will say, okay, we'll do it. And then they have to say, okay, we'll do it. They will pay for it. Now, then they give you a list of people who they approve for doing the IEE and then you go and you pick somebody. To do it so you want to investigate the people on the list because some of them are going to be skewed more towards the school district because they're approved by the district and the district will know that they could save the money if they sway it their direction exactly so you want to investigate and you know one of the things i have in my book that i've written is uh, a whole chapter that teaches how to research on google if you don't know how to research on Google, you've got to learn. <laughs> yeah. Because when you're investigating these people, you want to investigate if anybody's written anything about them, any moms have mentioned them in, in forums, anywhere. You know, so you want to do your own research before choosing to make sure that these outside organizations aren't biased in favor of the district. Right. I, I want to read something really briefly that um, is out of Bonnie's book, and, and I will link to her website. We'll make sure that, uh, that, that 
Bonnie says that here in the recording as well, her web, her website link, because there's a great, what is it, 10 page or so, it's a, a whole ebook, basically a PDF on all of these great resources for you. And I pulled this out of it, it says, the school psychologist said that 10 to 20% of the time parenting was pri parenting was the primary contributor and 100% of the time it was a child themselves that caused their own learning problems. This is really crucial for parents to understand because when you walk into an IEP meeting, you have to realize that they are already biased against you. So uh, you know, and then there's this also this aspect of, you know, you're not necessarily responsible for having to help your child at school, which I should have you talk about as well, Bunny. But I, I remember this. I was, we were told when my son was diagnosed over and over by various therapists who were supposed to be specialists that we just weren't good enough parents. We just needed to be firmer with discipline. And we, <laughs> yeah, because my son had one of his, it just was oppositional defiance disorder which is very challenging to parent. Yeah. And, um, and, but once again, that with the biology one, so the toxins were out. He had a lot of mercury and lead toxicity and mm. various things that were going on, which will create a lot of anger, irritation. His okay. gut was totally, you know, leaky gut problems. And now all of those are healed. He is the calmest, mellowest guy. It, yeah. it was not us as parents. It was not, you know, him not wanting to do anything that we asked. It was back again to that biology aspect that is really crucial so um just know parents to be strong when you go into these meetings and don't let them get you with blame because that yeah. they'll try to do that that you know yeah. i've experienced it i'm sure bonnie's experienced it we experience it you know we are parents of children who are not on that norm level and sometimes they're just special kids they have a lot of extra energy again making sure exercise is a critical piece as well mm -hmm. but um, um we should also talk bonnie about that aspect where it says you're not responsible for helping your child at school so there's a kind of a dual thing here you're you want to be available you want to be in there you want to be getting an advocate if you need to you want to watch what's going on but then what is the actual responsibility and necessity like when it comes to a field trip do you have to go like sometimes they tell you you do or your child can't go on the field trip because i've seen that happen too that's illegal mm -hmm. that's totally illegal and they do uh, it <laughs> yeah so um this is uh this is a really it, it's a very upsetting part of the the problem with the schools so you are not obligated to help your child at school. If your child has an IP or a 504 and they receive support for their disability, including behavior problems, on a field trip, they are required to provide your child whatever support is needed, just as they do in the classroom. And so if they say your child can't go on a field trip unless you come, then you say to them, well, are other students' parents required, like typical students, parents required to come too. If they say yes, well then then you have to go because that's part of the field trip. But if they say no, then you say, well, according to Americans with Disabilities Act, you have to provide my child the same support on a field trip as you would in the classroom. And the same is true in the classroom. If your child has behavior problems, uh, like one of my, my younger kid, he had really bad visual processing problems and he would there was a lot of school refusal in the early grades and I before we knew he had this issue and art was a particular problem for him because he couldn't do really fine detailed work because he wasn't he was having double vision 
And so I happened to have been an art docent. I had volunteered a lot, but that year I had chosen not to because of work. And they said, well, you know, if he can't behave during art and you won't come and volunteer, we're going to send him to another room doing art. I said, no, you're not because he has an IEP and he has dysgraphia. He was in OT for writing and that extends to needing to do art, you know? And so they had to find other supports to help him. So it's really important if they ever say to you, you must come to school or you must do this, you need to verify, is that all the parents or just me? Because if it's just you, they're, they're discriminating. Mm -hmm. And you might need an advocate if you don't know how to say to them, or if, you, if you're scared to say to them, you might need an advocate to step forward for you and say what you're doing is illegal. They can be, um, that you can file a complaint against them. You can file a complaint with the state and with the Office of Civil Rights. And they don't want that because they keep that on record. If school has too many complaints, they're going to get in trouble. So... Which is, I suppose, if they're really doing things that aren't correct and aren't right, that it might be good to turn that into just have it documented so that people yeah. in the future are, you know, are able to, to say, or something is done to the, for the school to, to change things that aren't being done right. Right. Um, so that people are made aware of it. Right. Now, on the flip side of that, though, it is good to volunteer in school in the elementary years yeah. because it's a way to see what's really going on in the classroom and a way to get to know the teacher and it kind of in a way to babysit the teacher to see, make sure the teacher's doing things properly. I'll never forget when my younger son was in kindergarten, I volunteered in the classroom and the teacher would yell in, at the kids. And then I started to understand why my son didn't want to go to school. <laughs> so we had a lot of school refusal in kindergarten and I was like, man, I wouldn't want to be in that classroom either. And I had talked to the principal a few times. And this was a like a 25-year, tenured teacher. You know, like, I don't know mm -hmm. if they do tenure in elementary, but she was basically an icon in the school. But I didn't want my kid in her class as she's yelling. Mm -hmm. So that's important to know because you might understand better why your child's having problems in school if you're there to witness things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Then um, also, I want to make sure everybody knows, um, Bonnie, can you give your website, um, and there's a, this free PDF download that you can get off of her site, um, and also Bonnie offers a free 30-minute consultation to help you identify the ways that you can help your child. Is that correct, Bonnie? Yes, that's true. Okay, great. So um, it's uh, uh, specialmomadvocate.com? Right. Okay. Do you have any other sites or uh, 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 anything else that you wanted to, to share as well um, with, with people before we wrap up? Yeah, well, I do have a blog on there and I do have a lot of other free downloads. Uh, for example, this week I added on the blog a download called the Disability Info Sheet, which is something you should start the school year with where you educate the teachers about your child's disability and all the accommodations that they are entitled to in the classroom. It's actually a myth that the teachers read the IEPs and 504s. They often don't, mostly don't. They don't have time. They really don't. So you bringing it to their attention does two things. Is one, it brings it to their attention, but two, it lets them know that you're watching. And yeah, so that is I think, good it, yeah, it's very important. And if your child's in middle or high school, you, you know, you're 
going to have six teachers. Mm -hmm. So you could write an email to each one individually. Don't do it as a group, but do an individually CC the case manager. So they're aware that you're sending in, just say to the teacher very nicely. I just wanted you to be aware of the challenges my child has in high school. I would ask the child if, if the child wants to deliver it or if, if he or she wants you to do it. Some high school kids can self-advocate. Um, it was, it can also, the child could be part of it or if the child is, which my son was um, kind of embarrassed. And so we kept it very quiet or so much around him. Uh, the, the teachers actually in high school were very good to come in. They came to the Vivo for meeting and said, what can we do? And really wanted to help. You're not, yeah, you're not always going to see that, but they, they really didn't have any skills themselves though. We were supplying them with how to deal with it. So that was, that was an interesting aspect too. They, they wanted to help. They really didn't know, have a clue really how to, or what to do. Um, and so at the beginning of each year, I would just take the 504 plan. If I didn't feel like things had changed and there was anything new needed, I would just take a copy of the 504 plan and I would put it in each of their email boxes at school and send an email. And so I, that I knew that they had that and were the new teachers then the next year were aware of some of the needs and, and said, please contact me if you have any questions. Um, or you can have a new meeting at the beginning of every year if you choose, if you need it. And by the time my son finally was in, I can't remember if, if in 11th grade, I think 11th and 12th grade, the last two years of high school, he had recovered so much that I didn't even need meetings and I, it was, was not even necessary. I don't, I'm not even sure if in the senior year I ever even gave them um, the information about him being on a 504 plan because he really didn't need it anymore. So these things do change over time, but you can have it go any way you want. You can keep it quiet and private. You can just alert the teachers on your own or have meetings with the teachers if they're, if they're willing um, at the beginning of the year and just say, this is probably some of the things that these are probably some of the things that you're going to see with my child. And these are some of the things that I have found being, that have been helpful. And, you know, cause they're, some of them are open, but they just don't, they really don't have any of these, um, this experience or knowledge. And, and I knew at the time, because it was years ago now that I was, and they even said that I, I was helping them out for future children that they're going to have in their classrooms yeah. because this yeah. is obviously a growing thing. There's a lot of it. And uh, these kids, there's going to be more coming their way. So, you know, if you have some ways to educate the, parent, the teachers and they're accepting and open, then it, it can be very helpful for them too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a just important way to start your kid off right and to make sure the teacher's aware because a lot of, I mean, I'll never forget when my son was in kindergarten, he was having a horrible time because they transitioned him from special ed preschool into general ed kindergarten with zero support. He got a half hour speech a week. Okay. And it was a freaking disaster. <laughs> and around October, I remember saying to the teacher, well, on his IEP plan, it says you're supposed to do da da da. And she says, I don't, I haven't read his IEP. I don't have time for that. And I was just, what do you mean you haven't read? And I, this is my first experience with general ed. And I, I was just shocked. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have time to read it? Like, I didn't understand. Are they required by law to read the IEPs? They're, no, not. they're not. And as a matter of fact, Ooh. a lot of special ed departments won't give full copies. They might give a list of accommodations or they might verbally deliver it. But they a parent will get a copy of that, correct? Of the IEP oh, for their child? Yeah. So again, back to making sure you as a parent you get that, that copy, that letter, a copy yeah. of that email 
physical, you know, into the hands of, of your child's teacher or teachers so that they are aware. Right. Now, while I'm working on a course that should be out uh, in October to teach high school students how to self-advocate. And it's a course wow. about teaching them how to be aware of their own plan and when to ask and how to ask and what to do when the teachers say no, which is very common. It's common for teachers. You know, if a kid said, I, I get extra time or I'm allowed to go to the library to take a test and the teacher will say no. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on an online course to, to teach the kids how to do it on their own because in high school, uh, you know, if your child's recovered enough, your child should be able to start um, saying, you know, I deserve this or I'm entitled to this. That's great because they're also, you know, if they're in high school, realize in high school, they're not that far from being graduates of high school and then being in college and possibly away from their parents or living on their own somewhere else, um, hopefully that they're able to, and that they need to know when to step up and when it's okay to say something or, or say, I've got these needs or, or teaching them those things. So their life skills as well as, you know, just self-advocacy for school, their self-advocacy for, for life skills. So um, yeah, that's amazing. And that will be at uh, specialmomsadvocate.com on your website as well. That- yeah. Link to that. Okay. Advocate. Perfect. And so one of the forward. important things about transitioning to college or after high school, um, it's important to know that your IEP plan does not, not follow you into college. Okay. But a 504 plan does. If you right. have accommodations and modifications on your IEP, then a, the college will accept those sometimes. A private school that re- receives no federal funding is not required to give you any accommodations. Any school that receives federal funding is required to accommodate your disability, but again, it's up to them to decide what does that look like. So when a child turns 18, the parent cannot go to the college and say, you have to give my child X, Y, Z. The college will say, your student needs to come, your child needs to come tell us that. So it's really, that's why I think it's really crucial for these kids to learn self-advocacy in high school if they're planning to go to college because the college will say it's your job to tell us what you need and you have to self-advocate in your classes because even in college, it's even harder to get the teachers to comply. Mm-hmm. There so, are laws that, that disallow them to speak to a parent if your child yeah. is over the age of 18. They cannot exactly. tell you anything or even talk to you about it. Right. Right. Unless you are a guardian, you know, guardian ad litem. But then again, if that's the case, chances are the child's not in college. So right. Or on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, wow. This has been really, really helpful, Bonnie. Thank you so, so much for your help. And uh, I'll make sure I link to all of these, uh, these things that we talked about. Um, And I do also have a sensory processing disorder expert um, podcast uh, interview that I did. I'll link to that as well, because I think those aspects, as we touched on some of them, but you need to know some of those auditory and visual, et cetera, resources and, and what might be causing them. Um, I'll link to that other podcast as well, because I think that could be helpful for parents here um, to have more knowledge. And, um, and you can uh, definitely um, 
get to Bonnie's site and get that PDF download for free. It's there, and uh, and I and I hope that uh, you get all the help that you need with your kids, and that this has been really really helpful for you. And this is a, a better year, and then they'll have better years to come. So um, thank you again, Bonnie. I thank really you. appreciate your time. Really appreciate you for you having me. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know that these kids really need it, and uh, so important because it just seems to be one of those things that gets left on the the sidelines a lot, and a lot of people just don't know what to do, and don't know what their their laws are, what their you know what they can do. So um, yeah, this is very helpful. All right, thanks again. Thanks.